Testing, one, two, three. Testing, one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon, on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode, Why Are Mormons So Fake? Tonight, I'm going to be looking at the talks that were given in the Saturday morning session of the April 2019 General Conference. My plan is to do additional episodes after this, one for each session of General Conference. Saturday morning, Saturday afternoon, General Priesthood session, and then the Sunday morning and Sunday afternoon sessions. At least that was my original intention, was to cover all the talks of the Saturday morning session in this podcast. However, I quickly found out that the very first talk that was given by Elder Suarez had in it an element that prompted a lot of thoughts and a lot of realizations on my part on the issue of why it is that Mormons tend to be so fake, that Mormons tend to be insincere in their relationships with others, that Mormons tend to be inauthentic. And as one thought led to another and one connection led to another, I found myself doing an entire episode on this subject. I'm really excited about this podcast. I think that it will constitute a substantive contribution to the sociological phenomenon of why it is that insincerity and inauthenticity is so rife among members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. In short, it is because we are taught to be that way, we are trained to be that way, and we are encouraged to be that way by the leaders of the church. I hope that right now, if you have not done so before, you will stop this podcast, go to RadioFreeMormon.org, and make a contribution right now. I'm asking all listeners to this program, if they are able to do so, to make a minimum monthly contribution of $10 a month toward Radio Free Mormon so I can keep this podcast on the air and continue broadcasting behind enemy lines. Now, as Bill Real would say, on to what you've been waiting to hear. First at bat in the Saturday morning session of General Conference is Elder Ulysses Suarez of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. Elder Suarez does a good job of setting forth a number of themes that are going to be picked up by subsequent speakers in General Conference. One of those themes has to do with people leaving the church, and especially members of the church who are friends of ours and even members of our own family. Different talks will address how to deal with people like that, deal with members of the family who leave the church, deal with friends who leave the church, and primarily how not to become one of those people who leave the church. This is a delicate balancing act, because the surest way not to become a person who leaves the church is to have nothing to do with a person who leaves the church. It has been my experience that once a person begins to become disaffected from the LDS church, his or her true believing friends and family will see them as radioactive, will want to have less to do with them, and will certainly not want to talk with them about the reasons for their disaffection. Contrary to this idea, and much to his credit, Elder Suarez speaks about continuing to love such disaffected family members. Elder Suarez first talks about being a good example to the members of our family, that we do what it is our church leaders tell us to do, that we show members of our family that we sustain President Russell M. Nelson as a prophet of God, not just by raising our hands to sustain him in general conference, but also by following his teachings. Play the tape. If we want them to know that President Russell M. Nelson is the prophet, seer, and revelator in our day, they need to see us raise our hands to sustain him 
and realize that we follow his inspired teachings. But, of course, Elder Suarez knows that more and more members of the church are leaving the church. In fact, more Mormons are leaving the church today than have ever left the church in the history of the church. Elder Suarez is aware of this, and so he knows that simply leading a good example for members of our family is not always going to do the trick, and therefore he quickly addresses that very issue. Play the tape. Maybe some of you are at this exact moment asking yourselves, Elder Suarez, I have been doing all these things and, <clears throat> and have been following this model both individually and as families, but unfortunately, some of my friends or dear ones have distanced themselves from the Lord. What should I do? Stop the tape. Now this is remarkable. This is something that I had never heard in four decades of being a member of the Church. General authorities at General Conference talking about people leaving the Church. I suppose we could say that back in the 1980s when Elder McConkie talked about how the caravan moves on even though some dogs may snap at the heels of the weary travelers, that may have been an instance of talking about people leaving the Church. But if so, it was not direct and it was also an anomaly. There were not multiple instances of church leaders talking about members leaving the church. And yet, by today, we will see that not only does Elder Suarez talk about this subject, but many other speakers in general conference address this subject as well from one angle or another. It has become a theme of general conference. And the reason it has become a theme is because it has become a churchwide phenomenon that members are leaving the church in droves. So to Elder Suarez's credit, he brings up the issue and asks the hypothetical question of what should a faithful member of the church do, even though he has set a good example, and yet many friends or dear ones, which is code for family members, have distanced themselves from the Lord, which is once again code for become disaffected from the church. Elder Suarez goes on to answer the question he has posed. Play the tape. For those of you who are right now experiencing these feelings of sadness, agony, and maybe regret, please know that they are not totally lost because the Lord knows where they are and is watching over them. Remember, they are His children too. Stop the tape. Now, this may give some sort of solace, the idea that even though your family members, your children, your spouse perhaps, has left the church, you should know that God knows where they are. They are not totally lost. They may be lost, but they're not totally lost. Why? Because the Lord knows where they are and is watching over them. Remember, they are His children too. Now, this may give a little bit of comfort, but upon reflection, this comfort turns decidedly cold when we realize that in the Mormon perspective, Satan and his angels, one-third of the host of heaven, are all God's children as well. God knows where they are, presumably he's watching over them, and yet they are lost, irretrievably lost. So this idea that Elder Suarez gives, hey, take comfort, even if your family members become disaffected from the church, they're not totally lost, God knows where they are, he's their father too, they're his children too, that doesn't really help a lot. That is not exactly the balm of Gilead. As if Elder Suarez is aware that this is not the best answer in the world, he goes on with his discussion of this subject. Play the tape. It is hard to understand all the reasons why some people take another path. Stop the tape. 
This is very interesting. Now, he's going to acknowledge the phenomenon because at this point it is indisputable. It is impossible to not acknowledge. And as I have said before, the droves of people leaving the LDS church has become a problem that is so great the leadership of the church can no longer ignore it. They have tried to ignore it for as long as they possibly could. But in the words of the movie, Jaws, I think you're going to ignore this particular problem until it swims up and bites you in the ass. Well, this particular problem has now swum up and finally bit the leaders of the church in the ass to the point where they can no longer ignore it. And it is mentioned over and over again in different talks in general conference. Elder Suarez says it is hard to understand all the reasons why some people take another path. Well, I imagine that's true in the general sense. Who can understand all the reasons why some people take another path? But really he's talking about why some members of the church leave the church. It may be impossible or hard to understand all the reasons why members of the church become disaffected, but Elder Suarez knows perfectly well why it is that so many members of the church are leaving the church. It may be hard to understand all the reasons why they leave the church, but it is not hard at all to understand the primary reasons that members of the church are leaving. And Elder Suarez knows this perfectly well. He has been present at many church leader meetings where they have been briefed ad infinitum on why it is that members are leaving the church. And the reasons are primarily threefold. Number one, issues with church history and finding out that the history of the church that the leaders of the church have been teaching the members for decades does not line up with the actual history. Number two, is the church's stand on social issues, primarily the equality of women in the church and also the equality of gay people and transgender people in the church. And the third reason that people are leaving the church has to do with the fact that they do not see the current leadership of the church exercising the gifts of the Spirit and the prophetic keys and powers that they see Joseph Smith exercising and therefore conclude that the current leadership of the church must have at some point along the way fallen into a state of apostasy and claim to have the powers of Joseph Smith and the keys of Joseph Smith and the authority of Joseph Smith while at the same time failing to manifest any of those keys, powers, and authorities in actuality. So it really isn't hard to understand all the reasons why some people take another path. Those are the three main reasons right there. And yet Elder Suarez goes on. Play the tape. The best we can do in these circumstances is just to love and embrace them. Pray for their well-being and seek for the Lord's help to know what to do and say. Sincerely rejoice with them in their successes. Be their friends and look for the good in them. We should never give up on them, but preserve our relationships. Never reject or misjudge them. Just love them. Stop the tape. Now, this is the point in the talk where I want to give credit to Elder Suarez for talking about how we deal with members of the church, members of our family, friends of ours who have left the church or become disaffected. He doesn't say to judge them. He doesn't say to withhold our fellowship from them. He doesn't say to shun them. Instead, he says we should just love them and that we should rejoice with them in their successes, be their friends, and look for the good 
All of these things are very positive statements, and as I say, I want to give Elder Suarez all the credit I can for saying them in the first talk of General Conference. But even though I want to give Elder Suarez as much approbation as humanly possible for expressing these sentiments, it is hard for me to ignore the fact that just under these sentiments is the idea of conditional love that nevertheless permeates his talk. What do I mean by conditional love? Well, the idea of unconditional love, the love that we like to think that God has for his children, is a love that is expressed to his children regardless of what decisions they make, whether they stay in the church, whether they distance themselves from the church, whether they go the final mile and have their names removed from the records of the church, that God still loves them just as much as he loves all of his other children. But when you look closely at Elder Suarez's words, you will see that the love he is advocating here for members of the family and friends who leave the church is not really unconditional. It is still conditional. These family members continue to have value, but really only to the extent that there is a possibility that they will one day change their ways and return again to the fold. This begins to come out in the talk in the last two sentences of the clip that we just played. Elder Suarez says, we should never give up on them. Okay, wait a second. What does that mean? We should never give up on them. People who leave the church, we should never give up on them. Well, obviously, the idea of never giving up on them means we should never give up on the hope that they will one day repent and return to the fold. And he says we should never give up on them, but preserve our relationships. So it sounds like he's saying that the reason that we preserve our relationships with our friends who have left the church and our family members who have left the church is because we never want to give up on them. So we preserve them not because we love them or because they're our friends or because they're our family members, but because at some point in the future, they may return to the fold. Therefore, we don't want to cut them off. So you can see why it is that this love he's expressing and encouraging begins to sound like it comes with strings attached, like there's an ulterior motive going on here behind this preserving of relationships, behind this expression of love for disaffected members. And he says, never reject or misjudge them. Well, that also appears to come with strings attached. The reason we're not rejecting them is because we're hoping that someday they'll return. If we reject them now, that could hurt that long-term goal. Therefore, we never reject them. Not simply because we love them, period, full stop, end of story. Now, this may seem like an overly harsh and cynical analysis of what it is that Elder Suarez is saying, and I do not want to be nitpicky. That's why I started off by giving him credit for the good things that he said. But as if to show that my somewhat cynical interpretation is probably correct, the very next thing that Elder Suarez says has to do with the parable of the prodigal son. Play the tape. The parable of the prodigal son teaches us that when children come to themselves, they often desire to come home. If that happens with your dear ones, fill your hearts with compassion, run to them, fall on their neck, and kiss them like the father of the prodigal son did. Stop the tape. Did you hear the language there? Now, we all know the parable of the prodigal son, but it's clear that the way that Elder Suarez is using this has to do with children who leave the church. They don't leave the family. They're still members of the family. That's what Elder Suarez has been encouraging is that we don't reject them from the family, that we continue to love them. So he's not talking about them leaving the family as in the parable. What he's talking about is them leaving the church. And then the time may come 
when they will come to themselves. Now notice this. He says the parable of the prodigal son teaches us that when children come to themselves. So they're not really being themselves if they leave the church. When they come to themselves, that's when they return to the church. And they often desire to come home. Well, if they want to come home, you should fill your hearts with compassion, run to them, fall on their neck, and kiss them like the father of the prodigal son did. Please note that it is only after they come to themselves and want to come home that you should fill your hearts with compassion. This seems a bit of a contradiction from the straightforward understanding of what Elder Suarez was just saying earlier in the same paragraph. I thought he was saying that we should have compassion for them all along the way, that we should just love them, that we should not reject them, that we should not misjudge them. But here he's saying that if they come to themselves and want to come home, then we should fill our hearts with compassion and run to them and kiss them like the father of the prodigal son did. You can see why this seems to be speaking out of both sides of his mouth. Elder Suarez concludes this part of his talk with the following statement. Play the tape. Ultimately, keep living a worthy life. Be a good example to them of what you believe and draw closer to your Savior Jesus Christ. He knows and understands our deep sorrows and pains and He will bless your efforts and dedication to your dear ones, if not in this life, in the next life. Stop the tape. Okay, so you can see how this conditional love, this ulterior motive, continues to come to the surface in these additional words that he speaks. Ultimately, keep living a worthy life. Okay, now this is how we respond to members of our family who leave the church. We need to keep living a worthy life. We don't follow them in their apostasy. We do not follow them in their disaffection. We keep living a worthy life. Why? He says so that we can be a good example to them of what we believe. Why is it important for us to be a good example to them? Once again, it's so that they will see our good example and hopefully come back to the church. This is why we're continuing to love them. This is why we're continuing to not reject them so that ultimately they will come back to the church. Sound unconditional? Not so much. Elder Suarez says, He, Jesus, knows and understands our deep sorrows and pains. These deep sorrows and pains are what are caused to us when a loved one or a family member becomes disaffected from the church. Our deep sorrows and our pains because they're going down the wrong path. They're not doing what they should do. They're not being faithful to the church. They're not following the leaders. They're not following the teachings of President Nelson. And so this causes us deep sorrow and pain. And then he says, And he will bless your efforts and dedication to your dear ones, if not in this life, in the next life. Well, what efforts is it that he's saying Jesus will bless? What dedication is it that he is saying Jesus will bless? Well, obviously, it's our efforts to get them to return to the church. He will bless them, if not in this life, in the next life. So if it doesn't happen now, it will happen in the next life. He doesn't pursue this line of thought any further, which is too bad because it raises a question in my mind. What are you saying that he will bless our efforts to get our family members to return to the church, if not in this life, in the next life? Does that mean that if we're unsuccessful in getting a family member to return to the church in this life, that we will somehow be successful in those efforts in the next life? That seems to run counter to everything that's taught about the plan of salvation. It certainly runs counter to what President Nelson himself is going to say rather famously later on in the same conference. But in another sense, this is also a theme throughout conference that when we pray to God, 
when we try to set a good example for our straying family members that God will answer our prayers. He will give us the desire of our hearts. And if he doesn't, well, we've got that covered too because that'll just happen sometime in the next life. That'll happen out there in the eternal future beyond the grave. It's a way of saying that God answers our prayers even when he doesn't. And there's a talk later on in this session of General Conference, the Saturday morning session, where a speaker is going to go into a great deal of detail on that theme about how God always answers our prayers, even when he doesn't answer our prayers. Elder Suarez next illustrates what he's been talking about with a story that he's going to tell regarding a member of the church whom he will call Mary. I'm going to read this kind of quickly because there's a number of interesting things in this story. The first thing is that Mary has four children, but she goes through a divorce. And the divorce apparently and by implication seems to be over religious issues. And not only that, both Mary and her children continue to confront questions they have about the church. Now, he's not going to say what those questions are, but he's going to mention questions sort of peripherally and how they end up getting answers to those questions. And this comes from continuing to be faithful and doing the ABCs of Mormonism, which we understand to be praying, church attendance, going to the temple, paying the tithing, following the commandments, etc., etc. Here's the story, which I'll read now. Throughout many years of service in the church, I have seen faithful members who have consistently applied these principles in their lives. This is the case of a single mother whom I will refer to as Mary. Heaven forbid we should ever refer to somebody by their real first name in the LDS church and in general conference talks. Instead, we always have to give them pseudonyms. One wonders why that is. The phrase plausible deniability comes to mind. This is the case of a single mother whom I will refer to as Mary. Sadly, Mary went through a tragic divorce. At that point in time, Mary recognized that her most critical decisions relating to her family would be spiritual. Would praying, scripture study, fasting, and church and temple attendance continue to be important to her? Okay, now this is why it is that it sounds like there's a spiritual issue or a religious issue going on with the divorce. If her husband, her ex-husband from whom she has just divorced, was continuing to be a faithful Mormon, why is it that praying, scripture, study, fasting, and church and temple attendance would continue to be important to her? Why would that be an issue as to whether that continued to be important to her? The way he tells this story, everything is dependent upon Mary, which gives the implication that at least as part of this divorce or as a result of this divorce, the father no longer prays, studies the scripture, fasts, attends church, and the temple. So it all falls on Mary. So there's that implication there of a single mom becoming a single mom because of a divorce with a person who was or has become disaffected from the church. So now it is her responsibility to take care of her children, to save her children, to keep her children in the church by following the principles that Elder Suarez has just talked about. And Mary is successful. He goes on, Mary had always been faithful, and at that critical juncture, she decided to cling to what she already knew to be true. Why is it she has to cling to it, one wonders. One gets the idea that maybe Mary has been having some questions about the church that are affecting her faith, and that she has to cling to her faith in order to make it through. She found strength in the family, a proclamation to the world, which among many wonderful principles teaches that parents have a sacred duty to rear their children in love and righteousness and to teach them to always observe God's commandments. She continually searched for answers from the Lord. Okay, there's that bit about the answers. She continually searched for answers from the Lord. Why is she having to search for answers? Because she has questions. That part is implicit. But what are the questions? We don't know because he won't say. But as the story is beginning to be fleshed out, we get the idea 
that Mary's having these questions that are affecting her faith, that she's searching for answers. She continues to cling to her faith and her questions get answered, at least apparently. He says she continually searched for answers from the Lord and shared them. So if she shares them, I guess she must have gotten them and shared them with her four children in every family setting. So that's a lot of family settings, which means a lot of answers that Mary's getting from the Lord as she continues to follow the family, a proclamation to the world. They frequently discussed the gospel and shared their experiences and testimonies with one another. Elder Suarez goes on, despite the sorrows they went through, her children developed a love for Christ's gospel and a desire to serve and share it with others. You see, Mary did the right thing. She kept her children in the church by continuing to be faithful herself in spite of the questions and, dare I say it, doubts that she had. Three of them faithfully served full-time missions. We don't know what happened with the fourth. Perhaps that was a girl and she didn't have to serve a mission. Perhaps it was a young man and he's having his own issues with the gospel. He doesn't give us details. That's part of the benefit of not using real names when you're telling stories in general conference. Three of them, three of the children faithfully served full-time missions and the youngest is now serving in South America. So maybe all four of them served missions. Maybe the youngest is the fourth one that's not talked about before. Three of them faithfully served full-time missions and the youngest is now serving in South America. So yes, it's a trifecta, it's a quadrifecta. All four of them served missions. She did it right. Her oldest daughter, whom I know pretty well, so this is the source now he's giving. The oldest daughter, he's not even give her a fictitious name, getting a little too close to home there. Her oldest daughter, whom I know pretty well, who is now married and strong in her faith, shared, quote, I never felt like my mom raised us alone because the Lord was always in our home. See, the dad wasn't there, but there was a priesthood holder in the home. It was the Lord himself. As she bore her witness of him to us, the daughter continues, as she bore her witness of him to us, we each began to turn to him with our own questions. Wait a second, there's that questions coming up again. Why is this all about the questions? So mom tries to answer the questions, but then mom teaches them about Jesus Christ. The kids develop faith to the point where they can turn to Jesus himself with their own questions. Once again, we don't know what these questions are, but they keep coming up. This appears to be an underlying theme of the talk. It's something that Elder Suarez will hint at, but he's a little trepidatious about going into the details. Finally, the daughter says, I am so grateful she brought the gospel to life. Period. End of quote. End of story. Now, I want to talk about an aspect of Mormon culture that is hinted at by this story from Elder Suarez. The LDS Church, as most people know, is a very missionary-minded church. Not only are young people, especially the young men, strongly encouraged to serve a full-time mission, but we are frequently reminded that every member is a missionary. In fact, later on in this very session of General Conference, Elder Uchtdorf will give a talk devoted to that subject, how every member is a missionary, and a number of different ways that we can do our missionary work and fulfill our missionary obligation, because it is an obligation and a duty upon Mormons to share the gospel with those who are not members. On a regular basis, the missionaries will meet with members of the church to ask for names of their friends in order for the missionaries to go and visit. And the members themselves are encouraged to share the gospel with their friends and hopefully invite them to hear the missionary discussions which should optimally occur in the members' home. The importance of Mormonism in the members' lives coupled with this emphasis on missionary work 
ends up having the effect of dividing the world into two groups of people. The first group is composed of those who are members of the church, and the second group is composed of those who are prospective members of the church. In other words, everybody who is not a member of the church already is considered to be a prospective member of the church. Those are the ones that we need to teach the gospel to and get them into the church by being baptized. And if someone has joined the church and subsequently become disaffected from the church and fallen away from the church, then those people have gone from the first group into the second group again and are once again prospective members of the church. We want to get them back. We want to get them back in full activity. We want to get them back attending church every week. And not only are members encouraged to share the gospel with their friends, but also great emphasis is laid on the idea that members be a good example of the church. Elder Suarez hits this note in his talk as well when he says, ultimately, keep living a worthy life. Be a good example to them of what you believe. See, there's this idea always within Mormonism of being a good example to those who are not members of the church. We live in such a way as to reflect well on the church in hopes that that will draw people who are not members into becoming members of the church. Now certainly members are encouraged to be a good example or to live according to the tenets of the LDS church as a good in and of itself, but also to be a good example, as Elder Suarez says, to those who are not members, or in the case of Elder Suarez talk, to be a good example to those family members who have become disaffected from the church. There is a two-pronged reason for this. One is to be faithful ourselves, but the other is to be a good example to those who are not members of the church. As I say, I'm not about to try and do a full psychological treatise on the subject. I'm not qualified to do it, but I can speak to my own experience. And my own experience in 40 years in Mormonism is that the result of this kind of repeated teaching is to give the relationship that Mormons have with non-members of the church, and actually even with other Mormons in the church, a certain degree of fakeness. The reason we are good examples is in order to get other people to join the church. The reason that we are encouraged to have friendships with non-members is to get other people to join the church. Now I'm not saying that Mormons cannot have any genuine friendships with people who are not members. What I am saying is that they are encouraged to look at all non-members with whom they have friendships, especially as prospective members, and are encouraged to look for opportunities to share the gospel with their non-member friends. This ends up turning people into projects and relationships into missionary opportunities. Let me tell you a story about myself in order to explain what I'm talking about more fully and how I came to realize this in my experience in the LDS Church. This story happened about a month after I was baptized in June of 1978. And in order for you to understand this story, and how I came to this realization about relationships in the LDS Church being somewhat mercenary in character. I have to go back four years before 1978 to when I first became exposed to Mormonism and what ultimately led me down the track to joining the church in June of 1978. At the beginning of ninth grade, in September of 1974, my family moved from Kent, Washington to Sumner, Washington. That meant I had to change school districts. This was quite a blow to me. Personally, I had been looking forward to being a ninth grader, i.e. the king of the hill in junior high school in Kent where I had gone in seventh and eighth grade. 
Now I was going to be a ninth grade. I was going to finally be able to be the person who was at the top of the class structure instead of being a peon. And it was at this point that my parents moved to another school district. Well, I have to start all over again now in ninth grade. I don't know anybody in Sumner Junior High School. But I quickly fall in with a group of ninth graders that is headed up by a guy named Bruce. And unlike Elder Suarez, I will give his actual first name. His first name is Bruce. Bruce was a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. He was a very faithful member of the LDS Church. And Bruce was a leader of sorts. He had a bit of a magnetic personality. There was a group of other kids that he was the center of. And I ended up finding myself within this group of kids. Now, there were not a lot of Mormons at Sumner Junior High School. Bruce was a Mormon. He was very open about his Mormonism. There may have been one or two other kids who were Mormons in this group. But by and large, the other kids in this group, including myself, were not Mormon. Now, every Friday night, Bruce opened up his own house with, obviously, his mom's consent. His mother was divorced. She was the head of the family. The father was not in the picture. But with his mom's consent, Bruce opened up his house to this group of kids. So every Friday night, this group of kids would meet over at Bruce's house, and we would play games, eat snacks, listen to music, and generally have a very good time. This was something that I looked forward to every Friday night, going over to Bruce's house with the gang and hanging out. And not long after I met Bruce, I started going to church dances with Bruce. I found that I really enjoyed going to church dances. I had never been to a dance before meeting Bruce. But every Saturday night, there was a church dance. Now, the local stake center where Bruce went to church did not have a dance every night, but we lived in an area where there were enough Mormons and enough Mormon churches and enough Mormon stakes that every Saturday night there was some dance that was within drivable distance that we went to. And Bruce and I always had a competition, and part of that competition was that we danced every dance from the very first dance when nobody's out there. We're the first people out there on the dance floor, breaking the ice, making it so everybody else feels okay to come out and start dancing. And then every dance in between all the way to the end. We danced every dance at every dance. I remember my mom, who of course was not a member of the church. I was not a member of the church at this time. But every Saturday evening when I was getting ready to go, my mom would always take me aside and remind me that she wanted me to dance with some girl for her. That's what she told me. Don't forget to dance with some girl for me. And I understood what she meant was that at every dance there are going to be some girls who are always being asked to dance, but there are going to be other girls who are not being asked to dance, maybe being wallflowers, maybe being not so popular. And what she meant was that I was always to make sure that on at least one dance, I asked one of those girls who was not being asked to dance, to dance. My mom passed away on October 10th in the year 2000, and I just want to let her know right now, if she's listening, that mom, yes, I did always remember to dance with one girl for you. But what this ends up meaning that as far as my social life was concerned, it was centered around Bruce and the gang. It was centered around an active member of the LDS church. Every Friday night, I'm going over to Bruce's house to hang out with the gang and play games. Every Saturday night, I'm going out with Bruce and many of these other people in the gang to go to church dances. So for four years, from 9th grade, 10th grade, 11th grade, and 12th grade, I am getting a steady exposure to Mormons and Mormonism, although it wasn't overtly to the church. It wasn't overtly to the doctrines of the church, but it was hanging out with a member of the church and going to church functions. Now, of course, 
Every now and again, Bruce would try and broach the subject of Mormonism with me. He was a good member of the church, which means that he was a missionary. Every member, a missionary. This is getting back to what I talked to you about before, which is that from a Mormon perspective, the world is divided into two groups, those who are members and those who are prospective members. Well, I was a prospective member, although I did not realize it at the time, and thereby hangs the tale, which I will get to shortly. On these occasions, when Bruce tried to broach the subject of Mormonism with me, I simply was not interested. I remember once when he was over at my house hanging out, he tried to talk to me about the three degrees of glory. I was completely bored by the subject and quickly changed the subject to something else that was of more interest to me. On another occasion, Bruce asked me to an open house, not at a temple, but at a church. And so this was some sort of function where you're supposed to invite your non-member friends over to a special deal at the church where they have pictures of events in church history. And basically it's a missionary effort, although I did not know that at the time. I was not interested, but I did go out of respect to Bruce and just as an opportunity really to hang out with him some more. My general response to Bruce's efforts was either one of boredom or one of mockery. I would simply make fun of him and his beliefs. It's kind of what we did as teenagers was make fun of each other. I suppose it made us feel better about our insecure selves. But I do remember one specific instance in our senior year in English class. This was the advanced placement English class. It was the very first time that any advanced placement class had been taught at Sumner High School. And I managed to get in. Bruce managed to get in. He actually was a very intelligent person. And he was in the class and a bunch of other kids were in the class. And we had freewheeling discussions in the class, sometimes even talking about religion. And I remember once when the subject of religion was being discussed by the class, I called over to Mary Bausch, who was sitting on the far side of the classroom. So I must have called out loud enough for everybody to hear, which I think was the point. She was a Catholic. And I asked her if she really believed that the Pope was infallible. And I think this sort of embarrassed her. It sort of put her on the spot, but she blushed. But after she blushed and stammered a bit, she did say, yes, she believed the Pope was infallible. Well, the whole point of that was for me to make my next comment, which I then did in front of the entire class, which was to say, well, that's nothing. Bruce over here has a prophet who walks and talks with God. My comment had the desired effect of getting a lot of laughter and making Bruce embarrassed. But that story gives you an idea not only of how much Bruce was trying to teach me about Mormonism, but also the fact that my general response to it was simply to make fun. Now, I'm not going to go through the entire story of all the things that happened that ended up with me getting baptized into the church. I will save that for another day. But ultimately, after repeated exposure over the course of four years to Mormonism and things Mormon and people who were Mormon, I ended up joining the church. In fact, it was Bruce who baptized me in June of 1978. And about a month after I was baptized is the story now that I'm prepared to tell you. With this background, I think it will help you better understand why it is that this story affected me so profoundly. The entire ward had gone out camping overnight on a Friday night in celebration of Pioneer Day. So it must have been at the end of July of 1978. All these people from the ward, we end up going out to some sort of campsite. We camp out, we spend the night, and the following morning, Saturday morning, there's a group of young men my age standing around in the field where all the cars are parked. The sun is out, it's getting warm, I'm there, I'm new, but now I'm part of the in crowd. I'm part of the club. I am a member of the LDS Church. 
and there are about 10 to 15 young men standing around. Bruce is at the center of this group. I'm off just a little bit to the side listening, though not really involved in the discussion itself. And what Bruce is talking to these other young men about are other friends that we have who are in the group, in the gang. They're not present because they're non-members. And he's talking about them by name and talking about what steps they need to take to expose these non-member friends of Bruce's and friends of mine, people I know, to the LDS Church with the specific goal of leading them along the path to getting them baptized. Now, I'm only 18 years old at the time. I'm not the brightest bulb in the box. But even so, it hit me with resounding force that Bruce must have been having similar discussions with these other members of the church about me before I got baptized. And I think what it did was that it recast my relationship with Bruce in an entirely different light. No longer was this something where he was just my friend, although he certainly was my friend. I don't mean to say that he wasn't a genuine friend, but it recast it in another light where he's not just my friend, but also he is working me. He is doing everything that he's doing with me with an ulterior motive in mind, which is to get me to join the church. And now that I'm a member of the church, I'm on the inside of this, and I can be privy to these discussions about other non-members of the church. I remember feeling sick to my stomach about this realization. I remember thinking that maybe Bruce's friendship with me was not simply because he liked me as a person, but because he wanted to get me to join his church. And I remember realizing that Bruce, having his friends come over to his house every Friday night, was maybe not completely just a chance to get together with friends on a regular basis, but it was to create a pool of non-members to whom he could introduce the gospel and from whom he could cull new members for his faith. And I was simply one of the herd. I was a number. I was a project. And I have to be honest with you, I don't want to overstate the case, but I felt used. I felt cheapened by this experience. And I remember talking to myself afterward, trying to get myself out of this feeling of being used and cheapened and being a project and just a number by saying to myself, well, really, how is the gospel going to be preached and how are people going to be converted and baptized into the church unless plans are made, unless tactics are used, unless organizations and events are created in order to expose non-members to the church. So after a bit of time, I became accustomed to the idea that this was simply the way things were. And in fact, this is the way things had to be in order to get non-members to join the church because joining the church was the most important thing. It is only within the LDS church that one can achieve not only salvation, but exaltation. And such important things cannot be left to chance. There have to be plans made and strategies laid. So even though I ultimately got over my feelings of being used, I never forgot them. And in fact, I ended up being assimilated into the organization that used those tactics and I myself ended up using those tactics with others. I'm not proud to admit it, but that is the case. And in fact, that is the case for the vast majority of active members of the church. We are encouraged to have friendships with people who are not members of the church, to invite them to our homes, to invite them to meet the missionaries, to invite them to church, to invite them to church activities, all with the goal in mind of getting them baptized. And as I say, when our friendships and relationships with non-members become so goal-oriented that the whole purpose of that relationship is to get that friend baptized, 
it has the result of affecting that relationship and making it more mercenary in character. No longer are we friends with somebody else simply for friendship's sake. No longer do we accept other people simply for who they are. The friendship becomes a vehicle to getting this other person baptized into the church, and we don't accept them as they are because they are not yet a member of the church. Only once they become a member of the church are we able to accept them for who they are, but actually that's not true either because we're accepting them as a member of the church. So even after they join the church, we're not so much accepting them for who they are, but we are accepting them now as a member of the church. And I believe that this entire cultural phenomenon within Mormonism has the effect of thinning and diminishing our relationships, not only with non-members of the church, for whom our primary goal is baptism into the church, but it also ends up diminishing our relationships with members of the church because the primary reason that we have that relationship with them is because they're members of the church. This is why Mormons view the world in two camps, those who are members of the church and those who are not members of the church. That is how we define them. That is their most important attribute, whether they are a member or not a member. And following this line of thinking a little further, once a person is a member of the church and they leave the church, it frequently ends up affecting our relationship with that person. Because you see, the primary reason that we have the relationship is because they are a member of the church. That is the single most important defining attribute of that person, that they're a member of the church. So when they leave the church, they now lose their single most important defining attribute, as far as many Mormons, including myself, are concerned. And unfortunately, this applies even if they are a friend, and I'll put that in air quotes for now, even if they're a friend or if they're a member of the family. A member of the family who leaves the church now loses their most important defining characteristic for many Mormons. And therefore, a natural tendency when people leave the church is for the Mormons they have left behind to have little to nothing more to do with them because the entire relationship with that person was that they were a member of the church and now that basis for the relationship is gone. And yes, unfortunately, this can apply even to members of the family. Now, we might think that if we have a child who is a member of the church, the basis for that relationship is that they are a child, not that they're a member of the church. They're a child who happens to be a member of the church. But too frequently, what happens is that the basis for the relationship is not that this person is our child, but that this person is a member of the church. They are a member of the church first and a child second. And therefore, when a child leaves the church, it can sever the relationship to an extent that would be otherwise unimaginable. And this is why Elder Suarez has to give this talk about what do we do with members of our family who leave the church and why it is that he has to encourage members not to cut them off, not to stop loving them, but to continue to love them and not be judgmental and to rejoice in their successes. Elder Suarez would not have to be counseling the members of the church in general conference in this way unless it was a very big problem in the church for Mormons to stop loving members of their family who leave the church, for Mormons to stop supporting members of their family who leave the church, and for Mormons to become very judgmental of family members who leave the church. So I've probably said more than I needed to about this particular subject, but I wanted to share with you why it is that talks of this sort strike such a deep chord in me and go back to that experience I had back in July of 1978 one month after I joined the church, to explain why these kinds of talks affect me so deeply. And once again, to the extent that Elder Suarez is encouraging members of the church 
to be more Christ-like, to be less judgmental, and to be more loving of members of their family who leave the church, I say good on you, Elder Suarez. You know, I had originally planned on going through Elder Suarez's talk and hitting on some other points in that talk and then going through the other talks in the first session of General Conference on Saturday morning. But as I think more and more about this subject of fakeness in Mormonism that is hinted at by Elder Suarez's talk, more and more thoughts come flooding into my mind and experiences come flooding into my mind which tend to flesh out and illustrate this phenomenon within Mormonism, this fakeness in Mormonism which is not only present in Mormonism but is actually taught to the members of the church. We are taught to be fake in our relationships with non-members. We are taught to be fake in our relationships with members of the church as well. What do I mean when I say we're taught to be fake with non-members of the church? Well, our primary goal when dealing with others who are non-members of the church is to be a good example. That is, quote, unquote, to be a good example of the church so they will join. Later on in this same session of General Conference, Elder Uchtdorf is going to give a talk on missionary work. And one of the things that he suggests is obeying the commandments. Now, obeying the commandments, how does that have anything to do with missionary work? Well, it comes back to being a good example to others. We need to represent the church and put the church in its best possible light by the things that we do and the things that we say. Our individuality and our authenticity are sacrificed on the altar of being a good example. This idea of being a good example of the church to non-members is a constant theme in Mormonism. It is drummed into the heads of every Mormon from primary on up. It is simply what a good Mormon does. And to the extent that a Mormon uses these tactics to get friends baptized, that person is a good Mormon. So really, I can't fault my friend Bruce for this. I can't fault him for laying all these plans and all these activities and all these designs in order to get me baptized because he was simply doing what a good Mormon is supposed to do. This idea also goes to the heart of why it is that Mormons are unwilling to say anything negative about the church, its history, or its leaders. If we want to put the church in the best possible light, we want to say only good things about the church. We don't want anything negative to be said or exposed to non-members because that might keep them from joining the church. On the other side of the coin, the same thing applies to members of the church. We don't want members of the church exposed to negative things about church leaders or church history because by the same token, that might cause members of the church to become disaffected. This idea goes all the way to the top of the LDS church. In fact, we learn it by their example, their example of hiding negative aspects of church history, of never mentioning them, of telling only the whitewashed, correlated, faith-promoting side of church history because the church leadership wants to put the church in the best possible light so that non-members will join and that members will not leave. Now, the idea of wanting to put our best foot forward and present the best face in a public setting is something that all of us are familiar with. It is something that is common to mankind. But in the LDS Church, this seems to be taken to a completely new level. Mormons do this to the nth degree when it comes to putting their church in the best light.
Now, the result of all of this being a good example of the church and never saying anything negative about the church is that it tends to add an element of palpable fakeness in our relationships with non-members and also it does a similar thing in our relationships with members. It permeates every relationship that a Mormon has, whether with non-members or with members, and it even can add an element of fakeness with our relationships with members of our own family. Mormonism is a high-demand fundamentalist religion. There are many rules and regulations that a good Mormon is expected to follow. These rules and regulations are both written and unwritten. Thank you, Elder Packer. And the extent to which we conform to these rules and regulations determine our standing in the LDS community. Now, we know that there are tons and tons of commandments and duties and requirements that we have as members of the LDS Church. It's not just being a good person and looking out for others and not taking the name of the Lord in vain. We have to do our home teaching, which is now ministering. We have to do our family history. We have to go to the temple to do the work for the dead. We have to go to church every Sunday. We have to attend all of our meetings. We have to pay our tithing. The list is virtually endless, and the obligation it puts on members can often seem overwhelming. No matter how much a Mormon does, it is never enough. There is always something more that Mormons should be doing that they're not doing, and the things that they are doing are not good enough and they need to do them better. Now, as I say, nobody can keep all of these commandments. Nobody can do all of these things in Mormonism that are required and nobody can do them as well or as often as they are supposed to. So for many Mormons, what this ends up leading to is getting into the habit of pretending to be more obedient and righteous than we really are. And because of this, Church ends up being a place that we go to every Sunday to pretend we're perfect. Now, on the whole, we don't believe our own pretense. We know it's a pretense. We know we may be pretending to be more perfect than we are. We know we may be pretending to be more righteous than we are. But we also know that our standing in the community is dependent upon this facade. But at the same time, many Mormons, while not believing their own pretense, are completely willing to believe the pretense of everybody else at church. Of all the people who are going to church, pretty much everybody is pretending to be more righteous than they are. So basically, we're all going to church. Most of us are pretending to be more righteous than we are. We're putting our best foot forward because we know that our status in the community and even the status in our own family depends on it. We know that our own pretense is a pretense because we're living it, and yet we are only too willing to believe that everybody else's pretense is the reality. In other words, everybody else really is as righteous as they're pretending to be. We are the only ones who are pretending to be righteous who are faking it. And what all of this tends to lead to, in my opinion, is many Mormons who get depressed and discouraged and feeling like they're not good enough because they know that they're just pretending to be perfect while everybody else really is perfect. I mean, everybody else at church is living the gospel, or so it appears to us, and yet we just can't live up to all of these high standards. And no matter how hard we try, we just can't measure up. So ultimately, most Mormons tend by and large to give up on living all of the requirements of Mormonism and just pretend that they are doing it anyway. They fake it to make it. But what does this do with our relationship with other members of the church? It is based upon inauthenticity. It is based upon not dealing with others 
as we really are, but as we are supposed to be. And what it ends up doing is making many of those relationships in the LDS Church, among the members of the LDS Church, fake, 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 to quote the words of Elaine Bennis. If you need any evidence for the proposition that Mormons are told all the time by their leaders that they simply are not good enough, that they are not measuring up, that there is always more that they need to do, you can look at any general conference, including this general conference. And if you have that idea in mind that you're looking for, all the different times that leaders, by implication and also directly, are telling you that you're not doing enough, you will find it over and over and over again. That is the single greatest theme of any general conference, is to let the members know that they're not measuring up, that they're not good enough, that there's more they need to do in order to be a good and faithful Mormon and to be acceptable in the sight of God. Is it any wonder that Utah has so many people in it who use antidepressants? What the LDS Church has ended up being is a breeding ground for guilt and feelings of inadequacy. And these are the primary factors, I think, that play into it. It also plays into the idea that Mormons tend to fake being happier than they really are. How does this happen? Well, we know because we're taught that if you live the gospel, then you will be happy. As sure as the day follows the night, if you live the commandments, you will be happy. We all know the Joseph Smith quote that happiness is the object and design of our existence and it will be the end thereof if we but follow the path that leads to it and that path is keeping all the commandments of God. I remember back in the 1970s when Paul H. Dunn was still a popular speaker in General Conference and I remember hearing him say that we as Mormons should bounce through life. We should be so happy all of the time because we have the truth and by obeying the commandments we will be happy. So if we are going to act like we are obeying all the commandments, we also know that we have to act like we're happy. So Mormonism encourages its members to fake happiness. We need to appear happy if we need to appear that we are keeping all the commandments of God. Even if we don't really feel happy inside, it is incumbent upon us to appear happy anyway. I remember back at the University of Texas at Austin student ward, one sacrament meeting, David Knowlton was up giving a talk, and I remember his words to this day. What he said was, if the gospel makes you happy, you live it. If it doesn't make you happy, you live it. The reason I remember him saying this is because I was enraged. I was sitting there in the congregation listening to him give this talk. I was enraged inside of me. Why was I enraged? Because living the gospel never makes you unhappy. What on earth did David Knowlton think he was saying? You can't live the gospel and be unhappy because if you live the gospel, it will make you happy. These were the thoughts that I had at the time in that sacrament meeting. Even the Book of Mormon says that it is wickedness that makes you unhappy because wickedness never was happiness. So once again, we as Mormons understand that to show that we are obedient and in good standing in the LDS community, we have to appear happy, even if we are not really happy inside. And I think you can see why this causes, for many Mormons, a disconnect between how we feel and how we need to present to others. And when there is a disconnect between how we truly feel and what we truly think and how we present to others, that is what is defined in the dictionary as inauthenticity. We can't be authentic about the church 
because we can only show the good side. We can't be authentic about ourselves because we are required to set a good example for others so that they will join the church or come back to the church. We can't be authentic about our feelings because we need to present as being happy even if inside we are not. In this way, pretense comes to be valued more in Mormonism than reality. Inauthenticity comes to be valued more than authenticity. So in the LDS Church, we are actually trained in this way to be inauthentic with non-members. We are trained to be inauthentic with members of the church, and we are trained to be inauthentic with ourselves. In fact, in a recent general conference, Elder Cook talked about authenticity, except he didn't really call it authenticity. He called it so-called authenticity. You see, when a person wants to actually be authentic and speak how they feel and say what they think and be who they are, that is what people outside the church call authenticity. But inside the church, that is called so-called authenticity. Play the tape. In today's world, there is an increased emphasis on pride, self-aggrandizement, and so-called authenticity, which sometimes leads to a lack of true humility. Some suggest the moral values for happiness today include be real, be strong, be productive, and most importantly, don't rely on other people because your fate is in your own hands. The scriptures advocate a different approach. They suggest that we should be true disciples of Jesus Christ. This entails establishing a powerful feeling of accountability to God and a humble approach to life. King Benjamin taught that the natural man is an enemy to God and advocated that we need to yield ourselves to the enticings of the Holy Spirit. He explained, among other things, that this requires becoming submissive, meek, humble, patient, and full of love. Some misuse authenticity as a celebration of the natural man and qualities that are the opposite of humility, kindness, mercy, forgiveness, and civility. We can celebrate our individual uniqueness as children of God without using authenticity as an excuse for unchristlike behavior. So you can see here in this audio clip from Elder Cook that authenticity is not valued in the LDS Church. The only kind of authenticity that is valued in the LDS Church is if you are authentically 100% Orthodox Mormon in your heart, in your mind, and in your behavior. And for the vast majority of Mormons, if not all Mormons, what that ends up meaning is that authenticity in the LDS Church is actually inauthenticity. Let me give you a couple of more stories to illustrate this point. Pretty much everybody in my audience knows that when Gordon B. Hinckley was the president of the church, he gave a number of interviews to media outlets. And in one of these interviews, he was asked whether Mormons believe that God was once a man. Instead of answering the question, President Hinckley dodged around it. And he said, I don't know that we teach that. I don't know that we emphasize that. Well, many Mormons listened to that interview and thought, what on earth is President Hinckley talking about? Of course we teach that. Of course we believe that. That is one of the distinguishing and fundamental teachings of Mormonism. Well, this statement by President Hinckley caused such a flurry of controversy amongst members of the church that at the very next general conference, President Hinckley got up and he alluded 
to this statement that he had made. He didn't mention it specifically, he alluded to it, and then he assured his audience that they could give him credit for knowing what the doctrines of the church were. Well, that got some laughter from the audience and it smoothed the feathers of some disgruntled Mormons. But think about the message he's giving. We understand from what he's saying that he was not being straight with the interviewer, that he knew what the real answer was, but he chose to be inauthentic in his response to the media. What is the message that sends to Mormons? That fakeness and inauthenticity is not only sanctioned in Mormonism, it is even encouraged and the president of the church will lead by example. This was hardly the first time that this sort of thing has happened, that Mormons understand that there is a voice that we speak to the outside world about the church, and there is a different voice that we speak to other members about the church. And frequently, that voice that we speak to the outside world about the church is not only different from what we say to other members of the church, it is fake, it is inauthentic, and frequently it can be misleading. Lesser minds might call it a lie. But that's all fine, it's all understood, it's all part of being a Mormon. Another story has to do with me shortly after I joined the church. I've told this story once before, though it was many episodes ago. I'll cover it briefly here. As I've mentioned before, I read some anti-Mormon literature shortly after I joined the church. I found that there were some issues relating to the Book of Abraham, that it appeared that some fragments had been found back in the late 1960s, that they had been translated by Egyptologists, and that the translations did not match what was in our Book of Abraham. I brought this up once to a friend of mine who was in the church. Well, he wasn't actually a friend, but he was sort of a friend of a friend. His name was Dave Green. He was in college at the time. He's several years older than I am. He seems to be very knowledgeable about Mormon things. And I brought up this question to him, and he immediately got very angry about it. And he told me that that was just a bunch of lies and that nobody in their right mind would be thinking that. And do I believe that Joseph Smith was a prophet? And really, that's all I need to know to solve this problem and to answer this question. Case closed. End of story. Well, Dave Green's response did not answer the question that I had, but it did teach me a very important lesson as a new member of the church. And that important lesson was that I do not say anything negative about the church, even to members of the church, even to people who have been members longer than I have been members of the church, and even to members who know a lot more about the church than I know. I do not bring up anything negative about the church because it will not be welcome and it will be received with anger and vitriol. So the first thing that we're supposed to do as members of the church is actually never find out about the negative aspects of the church. The church has done its very best to keep us from learning about negative aspects of the church. But if we should stumble upon something negative about the church, we are not supposed to mention it. We're not supposed to bring it up with anybody else, whether inside the church or outside the church. And once again, this contributes to feelings of isolation, it contributes to feelings of fakeness, it contributes to feelings of inauthenticity. And this extends even to our marriages. If we find out something negative about the church or something that is not faith-promoting, we are not supposed to share it even with our spouse. How many stories have I heard about a husband or a wife in a Mormon marriage who finds out something negative about the church and then continues to study and research these things on the sly, not letting their spouse know, not mentioning it to them. Because they understand only too well that mentioning these negative things about the church to their spouse could put their marriage in jeopardy. Does that sound like a solid basis for an authentic marriage? This kind of inauthenticity that the church teaches its members extends all the way down to such minor issues as whether church is boring. 
I remember once a few years ago, I was in a Sunday school class, and I saw another instance of this kind of thing in the LDS church. It was really very interesting. What I observed, I was in the back row, Sunday school was in the chapel, and there was this older lady, very nice lady, who was making a comment in class. She was one of the members of the class. She wasn't the teacher, but the teacher had asked some kind of question. This older lady is making this comment, and it's very clear from her words that where she's going is to the conclusion that church tends to be very boring. Now, this is no revelation to members of the church. There needs no ghost, my lord, come from the grave to tell us this. Members of the church know that church is boring, and yet members of the church are not supposed to say that church is boring. Members of the church are supposed to pretend that church is the most interesting thing that they do all week. And the funny thing was that as the sister starts talking and getting toward her point about church being boring, every head in the class turns toward her. And I can see this from my vantage point on the back row. Every head in the class starts turning toward her. And I see the sister becoming aware that every head in the class is turning toward her. And before she gets to the end of her sentence where she says the church is boring, she immediately hits the brakes and does a hard right and changes what she was going to say. The reason this was so interesting to me is because it was obvious she was going to say something that was not acceptable to the other members of the class. It was something negative about the church, even as minor as saying that in her opinion, church classes were boring. The other members of the class signaled their disapprobation about what she was saying by turning their heads toward her and looking at her. She picked up on the clue and changed what she was going to say so as not to offend the other members of the class, and so as not to breach that fundamental rule of Mormonism, which is that you never say anything bad about the church, and you never say anything bad about church history, and God forbid you never say anything bad about the leaders of the church. Now, as I say, all members of the church know that church is boring. You don't have to go to church that many times to realize that, and the more you go, the more you realize it, because going to something that is boring for three hours every week Every week of your life does not make it less boring, believe me. But do you remember the famous statement by President Spencer Kimball? The reason it became famous is because it was repeated in a general conference talk just a few years ago. And the statement by Spencer Kimball is that people frequently ask him what he does when he is in a boring sacrament meeting. Now, first off, notice the fact that if people come to him and ask him this, this is something that is generally understood among the membership of the church. This is not a secret. But as president of the church, his response to that is, I don't know. I've never been in one. Here is Elder Donald Hallstrom from April 2012 General Conference. Play the tape. President Spencer W. Kimball was once asked, what do you do when you find yourself in a boring sacrament meeting? His response, I don't know. I've never been in one. Really? That's what his response is. I don't know. I've never been in a boring sacrament meeting. Think about the dynamics of that story. And while you're thinking about the dynamics, please notice the telltale laughter from the audience when Elder Hallstrom tells that story. The audience knows it's a joke. The audience knows sacrament meeting is boring. The audience knows this is not reality. People know that church is boring. That's why people ask President Kimball what he does when he's in a boring sacrament meeting. His response is not to be authentic. His response is not to be honest. His response is to sacrifice his authenticity in order to put the church in the best light possible and say there's no such thing as a boring sacrament meeting. He's never been in one. 
So the fault, dear Brutus, is not in our stars that we are underlings, and the fault, dear Mormon, is not in our church, but in ourselves that sacrament meeting is boring. You can extrapolate the same idea to general conference. General conference is 10 hours, five sessions of two hours each of boring talks, all crammed in to one weekend, two times a year. General conference is boring, 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 but members of the church know that it's not supposed to be boring. It's supposed to be spiritually enriching. It is supposed to be inspirational. It is an event that members of the church are supposed to look forward to before it happens. And once it's over, it's something that they are not supposed to be able to stop talking about how wonderful it was, how much they were spiritually fed. That's a phrase we often hear about general conference, how we are spiritually fed in general conference. When the reality is that we are not spiritually fed at all, but that Mormons are starving for anything new, anything interesting, anything spiritually enriching. And the last place they're ever going to find it is during the 10 hours of general conference. Now this puts me in a bit of a tight spot because I cannot speak for every member of the church. Sure, there may actually be some members of the church who really think that general conference is great, it's wonderful, it's the best thing since sliced bread. So I cannot say that every single Mormon, without exception, finds General Conference boring, but is being inauthentic when they say that really it's wonderful. But I can say it's definitely been my experience, it's been the experience of many other Mormons with whom I've spoken, and I've got to think that it's the experience of the vast majority of Mormons, regardless of what they say. They know that church is boring, they know that General Conference is boring and yet they are required just as Spencer Kimball was to sacrifice their authenticity in order to say that church is not boring. Now this is a small example. This is a relatively meaningless example, but it is a good example for the way that Mormons have to sacrifice their authenticity on the altar of putting the church in a good light. And I think that virtually all Mormons know what I'm talking about even if they have trouble articulating it. I have had trouble articulating it myself, and in fact, during this podcast, I have been really thrilled with the fact that I seem to be able to come to articulation after articulation as I think more and more about the issue. I have come to the point where I think that I can connect enough dots and see enough examples that help me understand the reality of my experience in Mormonism as having very fake relationships. Relationships in Mormonism tend to be a mile wide and an inch deep. When I became disaffected from the church a number of years ago and stopped going, all the people who I thought were my friends in the church suddenly disappeared. We had talked regularly, we had done things maybe even outside of church, but after I became disaffected from the church, it was all crickets. They still had my phone number, they didn't call me, they didn't check up on me, I became invisible. Those friendships were actually just relationships, and those relationships were built upon one thing and one thing only, and that one thing was that I was an active member of the LDS Church. When I stopped being an active member of the LDS Church, the basis of that relationship went away, and so did the friendship. Now, I do want to hasten to say that there's been one primary exception to this rule. There is a member of the church who continues to reach out to me. We continue to have a good relationship. So this is not a blanket statement. It does not cover all Mormons. There is no generality that will cover any group of people adequately. So I do have to say there are exceptions. There's one or two exceptions to this rule, but 
The fact is that the vast majority of members of the church with whom I thought I had friendships, when I became disaffected from the church, those friendships evaporated like the dew before the rising sun. And this idea about relationships in the LDS church being based upon our activity in the church and our devotion to the church extends even to marriages in the LDS church. Sometimes we're surprised when we find out that two people who are Mormons who get married in the temple, they go along, they're happy, one of them ends up becoming disaffected from the church, and this can end up resulting in a huge strain on the marriage and often divorce. Why on earth is it that if one person in a marriage becomes disaffected from the church, that can frequently lead to divorce? Well, the reason is because the primary basis for the marriage in the first place was the fact that both spouses were active members of the church. This is taught by leaders of the church, and it certainly was taught a number of times back in the 1980s. I can remember frequently hearing leaders of the church tell the members that any two faithful members of the LDS church can create a successful marriage. Now, frequently, I think this was said in the context of trying to get young adults in the church to quit delaying marriage and get married, to quit being so picky about their partner. Actually, that was talked about, that young adults, especially the young men, needed to be not so picky about the women that they were going to marry. They needed to hurry up and get married and start producing little Mormons by the bushelful. They were actually told not to be so picky about who they were going to marry. I mean, it's not like they were going to be spending the rest of eternity with this person, so why be picky? Why take a little bit of time to get the right one? Uh, okay, never mind. But when, at the outset of the marriage, the primary basis for the marriage is the fact that both the husband and the wife are active, believing members of the LDS church, if that's the basis for the marriage, what happens when one of the spouses later on becomes less active and less believing? Well, it strikes at the very heart of the marriage. It strikes at the basis because that's what the marriage was built on from the outset because that's what the leaders of the church told them. That's the basis for your marriage. And I'm going to suggest here that if that is the basis for the marriage, one's faithfulness and activity in the LDS church or any church for that matter, that that is going to be a relationship that will lend itself to inauthenticity and fakeness for many of the same reasons that we've discussed earlier about how Mormons are taught to be fake with other members of the church. In the same way, parents are taught to a certain degree to be fake with their children and spouses are taught to a certain degree to be fake with each other. The most important thing is always the church, the church, the church. Mormon leaders will talk ad infinitum about how important the family is, but when you get right down to it and the rubber hits the road, if there is ever any conflict between the church and the family, members understand and are taught that they are to choose the church before they choose the family. Elder Oaks said in a recent interview about the church's stance on the LGBTQ issue that it would be perfectly acceptable for a parent who is a member of the church to not allow a gay son or daughter to spend the night at the parent's house with their partner and even if they did that much, that it would certainly be acceptable and even more acceptable and more understandable to let that gay son know, don't expect to go out with me in public, don't expect me to introduce you to our friends. Because God forbid we should run into anybody we know and that they might think that I agree with you and your gay lifestyle. What is being taught to be put first, the church or the family? And to the extent that we follow these admonitions and put our relationship with the church over our relationship with members of our family, 
the relationships with members of our family are going to be thin, they're going to be shallow, they're going to be brittle, they're going to be inauthentic. In short, they're going to be fake. Now once again, this is a complicated issue and it's not all black or white. Members of the church can have good relationships with members of their family. They can have authentic relationships with members of their family. But underneath all of that, whenever there's a conflict between the church and the family, they are supposed to side with the church. They are supposed to be good examples of the church to members of their family, like Elder Suarez says. And to the extent that that does not represent who that parent or family member really is, it's going to contribute to an element of fakeness even among members of the same family. And it is because of this inauthenticity and fakeness that permeates Mormonism and the relationships that Mormons have with basically everybody else, including members of their own family, including their own spouses, that when Mormons become disaffected from the church and end up leaving the church, that they are in a position where they can reclaim their authenticity. They can now speak the things they really think they can now give voice to the feelings that they really feel. And this ends up putting them in a position where they can experience happiness and fulfillment and wholeness to a degree that was never available to them when they were active members of the LDS Church. So even though Alma says wickedness never was happiness, I would amend that and give the Radio Free Mormon translation of that Book of Mormon passage. I wouldn't just say that wickedness never was happiness. I would say that fakeness never was happiness. And unfortunately, because there's so much fakeness within the LDS Church, to that same degree, there can never be happiness within the LDS Church. And ironically, and unfortunately, and as completely contrary as it may be to modern Mormon conceptions about where happiness is to be found, true happiness, which I define as authenticity, as I define as being true to oneself and one's beliefs and one's feelings, can never be found in the LDS Church but can only be found outside the LDS Church. But like Donald Sutherland once said when he was asked about his method for acting, he said, the secret to acting is to tell the truth. And once you can fake that, you've got it made. Now to bring this podcast full circle back to where I started, I want to tell you another story about my friend Bruce. You'll remember that Bruce baptized me, and then a month after he baptized me, I found out that really I was a project. I was somebody that he was planning to get baptized. I was someone that he had worked very hard for four years to get baptized. And it made me concerned that really our friendship wasn't based upon who I was as a person. I mean, my friendship with him was based on who he was as a person. I wasn't trying to get him to join my church. I wasn't trying to get anything out of him. I wasn't trying to get him to do anything that I wanted him to do. I was just his friend. So to find out that he was viewing me, at least to some degree, differently, that his friendship with me was based on, at least to some extent, the idea of getting me to become a Mormon. That made me feel cheapened. Now I want to take that story with Bruce and fast forward 40 years. Now we're no longer teenagers, now we're in our 50s. And Bruce had gone on, he'd gone to college, he'd become quite successful as a manager of a pharmaceutical company on the East Coast. But every now and then he'd fly back to the West Coast, we'd all get together a lot of the members of the old gang would get together and we'd get together back at his house. The same house that we used to meet together at 40 years ago every Friday night. And many members of the gang are still not Mormon. Some of them are. I am. Bruce is. There's a couple others who are. But still there are several who never joined the church but are still members of the gang. And I think by this time they're pretty much on to Bruce because he had tried to 
get other people to join the church. It wasn't successful with all of them. I think they all understood that that was part of the game. And yet we continued to remain members of the old gang. So one night, not too many years ago, Bruce has come back from the East Coast for a visit. Many of the members of the old gang in our 50s now, getting a little bit long in the tooth, are gathered over at Bruce's old house. And we are in the kitchen. And we're sitting around the kitchen table and we're talking about old times. And there are so many people that the seats are filled up. A lot of them are standing. Bruce is sitting down as he usually was, kind of in the center. I'm sitting next to him on his immediate right. And a point comes in the conversation where Bruce does what Bruce always does and what all Mormons do. He tries to talk about something about the church and put it in a positive light. At this point, I can't remember exactly what it was, but I think it had something to do with charitable contributions the church was making in the wake of some kind of natural disaster. And it was about 11 o'clock at night. It was dark outside. Everybody was having a good time. We were listening to Bruce talk briefly about this good aspect of the church. And as soon as he was done, Radio Free Mormon, to his immediate right, speaks up and he says, Hey everybody, do you know why it is you always take two Mormons with you when you go fishing? Everybody looked at me and I said, Because if you take only one, he'll drink all your beer. The room erupted in laughter because they all got the joke and they thought this was the funniest thing they had heard all night. Everybody's laughing. There's only one person in the room who's not laughing and that person is Bruce. And Bruce is turning and looking at me with this dumbstruck expression on his face like he cannot believe I just said that because I had broken one of the cardinal rules of Mormonism. I had said something about the church that did not reflect well on it. I was not doing missionary work the way I was supposed to be doing it, I was not being a member missionary. And in retrospect, one of the things that made that so funny is that the joke itself is making fun of the idea that Mormons want to pretend that they're better than they are, and if someone isn't around watching them, then they won't be as good as they know they're supposed to be. And I think it was at that point that Bruce started to realize that Radio Free Mormon might not be as orthodox a Latter-day Saint as he used to be. Another thing that occurs to me about that experience is that here's Bruce trying to put on a front, trying to talk only about good things about the church. People are listening to him. They're not really interested, but they know they got to listen to him because this is the kind of thing that Bruce says. But I tell a joke about the Mormon church that makes fun of Mormons. Everybody's dying laughing, and immediately the balance of power in the room shifts to me because by being more authentic and recognizing the foibles of Mormons and even the inauthenticity of Mormons and recognizing it in the form of a joke suddenly bound people to me in a way that they were not being bound to Bruce. And this is really the fundamental mistake that the church makes, I think. And so here's my advice to the leadership of the church. You are never going to get people, whether members of the church or non-members, to feel close to you or connected to you or bound to you in any meaningful way as long as you are pretending to be perfect. Pretending to be perfect is not what gets people to feel close to you. As Guinevere is reputed to have said about Arthur, he that hath no fault is all fault. So this message here is for the leaders of the church. I know that you want to pretend that church history is not problematic. I know that you want to pretend that your connection with God is closer than it really is. I know that you want to pretend that you actually have meetings with Jesus Christ in which he reveals his will directly to you. I know that you want to pretend 
that you receive revelation from God and that then you pass that revelation on to members of the church. I know that you want to pretend all these things, but you know that they're not true. And I know that they're not true. And more and more, members of the church are catching on to the fact that they're not true. If you really want to bind members of the church to you, you don't do it by pretending that you're better than you are. You do it by being honest. You do it by being authentic. You do it by being vulnerable. You let them know your failings, your imperfections. You share with the members your problems, your foibles, your struggles, dare I say it even, your doubts. And as you do that, you will find that members of the church will be drawn to you in a way that they never were before, that you will actually have meaningful relationships with members of the church, and not only with members of the church, but also with your colleagues in the church and with the members of your own families. You will actually become leaders to the members of the church and not just figureheads. This is why time and time again, though it doesn't happen that often, in the history of the church, the leaders of the church that are open about their imperfections and their failings are much more loved and adored by members of the church than are the vast majority of leaders who pretend to be perfect. This extends from Jay Golden Kimball saying over a hundred years ago that he wasn't going to go to hell for swearing because he repents too damn fast, all the way up to President Uchtdorf ex-President Uchtdorf, who brought down the house at General Conference by commenting that when he was doing his family history, he was also drinking of the caffeinated diet soda that shall not be named. This is how you bind your members to you. This is the way forward. This is the way to at one and the same time make the church stronger, more cohesive, and actually finally get around to telling the members the truth. Honesty is not only the best policy, it is also the only policy that you have going forward to help this church stop shrinking and begin to grow again, to make this church a healthy place for its members, to make this church an authentic place for its members. You have to set the example by being authentic first. But I'm not going to hold my breath waiting for that day to come. Because even though it is the simple thing to do, it is the obvious thing to do, and it is the right thing to do, I will bet every listener of this program, dollars to donuts, that the leaders of the church will never take this advice. So in honor of the leaders of the church who teach the members to be inauthentic and fake, I'm going to close out this episode with this 1950s hit from one of my favorite singing groups, The Platters. No, wait, scratch that. Instead of doing the original song, I'm going to play a cover of that song from 30 years later. See if you can guess who this performing artist is. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air.
Free 